Okay. Welcome back, guys, to the Muscle Mentors podcast. Um, we are joined here to, well, I say we, Callum is not in the in the building or in on the call because he is uh, too busy moving house because apparently it's more important than, than talking about RDLs. But, <laughs> um, but no, we're joined by, uh, well, James is, is filling in for Cal, is representing the Muscle Mentors. Um, so, and then we're also joined by the mighty skinny Gaz of Triage Method, an absolute honoured guest and uh, hero in the world of exercise mechanics and just the fitness industry in general. We love Gaz. Um, <laughs> and, um, but no, we're, we're basically going to, this isn't even a guest interview. This is a sort of educational round table of sorts where we're just going to go through some stuff with respect to RDLs in general. Um, go through some stuff with respect to exercise mechanics and some of the technical terms and and then what happens with like how we can manipulate you know the movement of an rdl using things like bands and and uh, and all that jazz and then kind of applying that same consideration to some other movements later on as well um but anyway we'll start with um giving gaz and james some time to talk about themselves so <laughs> um Anyway, Gaz, you kick it off. Thank you for coming on firstly. And um, do you want to tell people what you're about? Yeah, no problem. Believe it or not, my mother did not actually christen me as uh, Skinny Gaz. The name is, in fact, Gary McGowan. In real life, you know, that's what people call me. <laughs> on the internet, that's it. Uh, but yeah, no, I'm the co-owner of uh, a business called Triage Method. Very similar business to the Muscle Mentors. The only difference is that we probably work more with the general population clients um, and some people who play some sports rather than the actual kind of physique clients that, that the muscle mentors work very competently with. Um, so yeah, my co-worker is co-worker, co-owner, whatever, um, is Mr. Paddy Farrell. Um, and you can listen to more of our stuff on our podcast if you'd like. But anyway, um, yeah, that's, that's me. I like exercise. I'm interested in things like re- the, the application of exercise to rehab and health conditions, especially like that's a big area of interest of mine. Um, and generally, all this sort of stuff, the guys talking about exercise mechanics, all that, uh, that's me. That's what I like. So, so there you go. Mm. And what about your, your current degree? Is that still going? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a degree in, in, in physiotherapy and I just finished that recently and planning to go on and do some some further studies for another four years um, in, in medicine. That's the plan anyway, as of September, but we'll, we'll worry about that when it comes to it. <laughs> and that's just so he can call himself Dr. Skinny Gaz. Yeah, it's just so I can troll people. Like my plan is actually just like that's why I don't mention the, the degree. It's just it's just to come out in four years' time and to be like, oh yeah, I'm just a personal trainer, and then just be like, oh yeah, medicine, physio. Like that's just continuing education. Like, <laughs> like do you do not have a degree. <laughs> I love it. I'm gonna do the same. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. Stepping up the bar- barrier for continued education. <laughs> no, it's just it's just a it's just a basics, James. Basics. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, though, probably should be given the stuff that we get asked on a day to day basis. Yeah. <laughs> and a Q and A out, and then everyone thinks you're a doctor, so probably pay to be one. <laughs> oh, and how about you, James? Give everyone a because some people won't know you because you've you've only been on the podcast once, and it was a sick episode. Yeah, but, uh, Q&A we did before um, yeah. on exercise. My name's James Sutton, based in Nottingham. Been in the industry for longer than, uh, well, some of, one of the muscle mentors is as old. <laughs> 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 right. 
Ryan's about 15 and I've been in the industry for close to 15 years. So <laughs> my rounds, um, the main thing I think at the moment is just looking forward to teaching again this weekend in Birmingham mm. on our phase one practical camp. Indeed. And about to change your life in general by, I say that you might not even be teaching because of this reason. So well, that's, that's not public uh, knowledge. Uh, so. Okay. Well, okay. Well, we'll leave it there then. People are going to be like, what the fuck's Luke talking about? James is like basically booked onto a gay cruise and that's what he may be doing. <laughs> Rumors start spreading at this moment in time. <laughs> uh, anyway, that was a close one. That was a close one. Um, Anyway, so we're going to kick it off by basically going through, because it, 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 this conversation will have potential to get quite technical to some degree. Um, so we're going to basically define all the technical terms straight out the gate, or most of the technical terms that we're going to use. Um, and most of these are what, you, what we'd call RTS-isms. <laughs> um, so they're kind of originating from Tom Purvis's RTS, so Resistance Training Specialist Programme, um, and he has trademarked most of these, I believe. Am I right? Yeah, quite a few. Yeah. So that so when people you, you hear a lot of people referencing like strength profiles, resistance profiles, or which are essentially, um, you know, the the thing when people use the term strength curve or resistance curve, like it's it's basically the deeper understanding of those. But, um, but they're, they're basically Tom Purvis's language. Um, so when people use those terms, they are basically referencing RTS, whether or not they know it. Um, so, but I'll start with strength profile. James had a really good one for resistance profile, but strength profile is essentially, what well, if you saw it on paper, it's like a, a, essentially a graphical represent, representation of where we're strongest and weakest throughout particular range of motion with respect to like whether it's a, a multi-jointed movement or a single jointed movement. So if we're doing like a bicep curl, for instance, that's essentially a, a single jointed movement given that we're looking at the elbow flexors working on their ability to produce torque around the elbow joint. Um, and uh, in that respect, like we're kind of weak in the extremes of each range, like weak in the length and position, weakest in the shortened position and, somewhat strong strongest in the mid-range um and then when we're looking at other movements that are more multi-jointed in nature for instance like a pushing movement we'd be basically strongest at the top of the movement weakest at the bottom in the case of an rdl um which is essentially a single jointed movement when you break it down i mean yes there's a lot of demand around guys in the spine and things like that but the the you know the, the 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 line of force we're dealing with doesn't ever really kind of it kind of passes straight through the knee so it doesn't really un unless you're manipulating you're pushing your knee intentionally further away from the bar which you can do um but that that joint doesn't really change um so like with respect to the rdl you'd probably say that we're actually we you know if you look at the glutes for instance as a as a singular muscle group you're probably quite weak at the top of the movement, somewhat weak at the bottom, but you know, probably getting into quite a strong position. So the actual strength profile for that movement might be going from, you know, a weak position at the top to a stronger position at the bottom and reversing that as we go back up. Um, if that, if people would agree with that, um, you're welcome to disagree by the way. 
Um, and then, but James, do you want to jump in and describe or define the resistance profile? So the resistance profile is really just looking at or the representation of changes in resistance <coughs> or occurring throughout a range of motion. Um, so basically just looking at the degrees of challenge. Um, and something that just to add on to resistance profile, people get confused sometimes when they're looking at a machine, trying to figure out when's that machine heavy, when's that machine lighter, um, without even applying ourselves to it. And if we're just looking at the machine, that's the magnitude profile. Uh, and it's only when we're attached to that machine that is actually considered the resistance profile. Um, so once we're in place performing the movement, then we can start to look at, well, when's that machine going to be heavier or lighter, depending on the line of pull or line of force that we're having um, from our hand, from our foot, whatever the, the point of application may be. And the theory behind what sort of uh, like the RPS, RTS thought process is that ideally we're going to strategically manipulate the resistance profile with respect to the goal and maybe the exercise specific strength profile to try and get where it's heavier, a point where we're going to be stronger, um, and then where it's lighter, a point hopefully um, where we're going to be in a weaker position. We're not always going to follow that. That's not always going to be a, a sort of a foundation rule, but that's something that we want to be be aware of and have a consideration for when we're making our decisions. Yeah. Uh, if we were to look a little bit deeper as to what's making up the resistance profile, um, it'd be internally within the muscles, the internal moment arm, um, and the length tension relationship. I'm not going to go into what they are at this stage, but I'm just putting them out there so people are aware. But practically when we're, using it would almost maybe need to look at like fatigue um the more fatigued we get the more potentially the um resistance profile is going to change once we're attached on the machine sort of looking at like with the strength profile um and then generally proportions wise as well so especially on them pushing and pulling movements the more someone's ability almost to to fold up um the more it's going to affect things a little bit mm. i reckon we should uh we should define moment arms and the internal moment arms because if we define a moment arm, which I, I I've done recently, um, like the shortest measurable distance between a line of force and the axis of rotation. So, if we're which you you know visually that for some people you can be like, oh, what the hell's that? Basically, the greater the moment arm, the more torque demand. Like if we if we think about the equation for torque, which people who followed me recently i put it on my story when i was talking about a particular movement um the talk is 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 um basically force times the length of the moment arm so we you know if either of those things increase so we could have like a consistent amount of force and then gradually move that further away from an axis and that would increase the torque demand on the axis or we could keep it the same distance from the axis and increase the amount of force that would increase the amount of torque at that axis um, so with regards to the internal moment arms that James, James just mentioned, that's essentially the, the moment arm provided by the muscles pulling around the joint. So where, you know, the, the, the further a, or the, the more, yeah, essentially the further the line of <coughs> pull, or, the, or what do we call it, the force vector provided by the internal muscle or, or the muscle tissue around the joint, the more mechanical advantage that will have at rotating or causing movement at that joint. Um, so which is which it will change at certain points in the range and there'll be points in in a range for instance in the bicep curl where 
that internal moment arm is greatest, which is kind of in that mid-range, which is one of the reasons why we're strongest in that position. And then as we get into the extremes, that will reduce, which is why talk, like the amount of torque being produced to those joints will also reduce. Um, which kind of, would you agree? Yeah, and I suppose like for those people who aren't aware of the technicalities, like you can you can actually boil these down into very simple concepts in everyday life. Like one of my favorite ones is when you're trying to push open a door, if you push the side that's really close to the hinge of the door, like that's a pretty bad idea. It's inefficient. That's why the door handle is always on the opposite side because there's a larger moment arm to the hinge of the door. Similarly, if you were to go on a seesaw, you know, and you and you were to sit with your friend, if you were heavier, you know, and it's one of your kids you're, you're playing with, you know, you're going to go a little bit closer. And that again relates to that kind of moment arm, like, like, like Luke is talking about the torque equal force by distance. So if you're heavier, you're applying greater force, so you're going to go a little bit closer. So that's another kind of intuitive one. And the final one is probably, you know, using something like a wrench to open up a bolt. We generally use something like a, something like a wrench because it's longer and it increases the moment arm to that axis, which in this case is the bolt that's that's within whatever you're trying to unscrew. So they're kind of the, the easy ways to understand this. And then like, if you just think about that, like as it relates to, let's say, the knee joint okay so when we're talking about the knee joint like and we think about all the bones that are involved rather than breaking them down specifically if you think about like the, the quads right when the quads are pulling on the knee to try and extend the knee they essentially act over the small little bone there your kneecap your patella okay so you've got your patellar tendon and your patellar ligament depending on who's teaching you but essentially you've got this little this little ropey thing which is the ligament that's attaching onto that tibial tuberosity and what that's doing is pulling on that knee to try and extend it, okay? And that's that 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 distance from that tendon to essentially the, the joint axis there at the knee, that's creating that internal moment arm. And there's going to be some variation there between individuals. I think there's like there can be up to, I think, four to six, not four to six centimeters. I can't remember the specific value, but there is variation between individuals. And these are those, I guess, invisible things that you don't see that would explain variations in strength between people. Um, and also, like, I suppose it's, it's interesting to look at this, like, from an evolutionary perspective, the way that patella is there, like that patella is essentially there to increase that internal moment arm. So that shows you like why that is it, why that is efficient. You can see similar things at the shoulder, like, you know, the way that the delts essentially attach up and over that gives them a little bit more mechanical advantage. So all of these invisible things, they're super cool. And I like to, to think about, to theorize about, but I suppose like they're often totally invisible when we're in the gym, but, but they are there and they are real and, and they do explain to some degree these inter-individual like, differences in, in strength and, and the exercise experience even. Mm. Which is good, you referenced the inter-individual um, like differences because we have, like where, where people talk about strength profiles, resistance profile, well, it's mostly strength profiles. They'll say like, you know, this is the strength profile for a bicep curl and this is a strength profile for a leg extension and you know such and such but that's kind of like an average like a guesstimation like everyone's going to be slightly different like i think michael even talked about this on the last rts i attended where he was saying like he personally when he's doing a leg extension because of his internal mechanics and everything like that he needs like a 45 percent drop off in in load as he gets it to the top of a leg extension whereas you have tom purvis the founder of RTS who needs a 55% drop off and then like they need a drop off, but the rate, you know, the difference in drop off is going to, is going to be different relative to the individual. So that like, that's, that's kind of getting too technical for this, but like understand that there's a lot of differences that go into this stuff, which Gaz just highlighted rather well. 
yeah, it. it's it's cool as well like when you think about it in terms of i suppose like you know most of your listeners are relatively well muscled you know so you by being well muscled like having a lot of muscle like that even changes what's going on within within the muscles and within the joints so like this like all of the the internal physics you could say that's going on is changing throughout your training career and i always find that interesting when we think about things like you know beginners coming into the gym and doing a bench press like if you're if you're someone who already has massive pecs like you already essentially have i guess more of an advantage to to produce force in that bottom position versus the beginner who's just getting into the gym so when the beginner is saying oh, oh do you know i i don't i don't really feel comfortable to, to touch my chest at the moment like it's hurting my shoulders and all this it's like it's important to recognize like that where you are right now does not necessarily make your experience like exactly the same as someone else who's a beginner so like all that stuff is, is super important yeah yeah amen amen um what are we thinking are we going to need to define inertia what do you reckon i think just when if we're going to look at the application of bands um then we need to have a brief understanding of inertia um potentially know that what yeah. effect the band may be having uh, positively or as negatively in a sense um yeah. on inertia okay go but for it's it it's just this resistance to change um if an object's moving it wants to continue moving in that direction um if an object's static then it wants to basically stay static mm. um, i think that's as as deep as we need to go really mm. with it at the moment so just knowing on anything so if we're looking like a, a dumbbell if we're performing a dumbbell press and that dumbbell is obviously falling down to the floor in a sense as we're going down on the way on going down in the movement then that dumbbell wants to keep traveling towards the floor mm. um so the quicker we move on the way down the more we've got to come up with to try and change the direction of that dumbbell mm. um i think yeah. just at this stage um having that foundation understandings knowing that then if we take that maybe press an exercise and we do maybe a Smith machine press um, and we go and put a band from the bottom that comes up and then increases in tension as we push through, that's going to accelerate that bar coming down. Mm. Um, so there's going to be an increased inertial effect um, at the bottom because that band's pulling us into the movement. But if we were to put the band on the top, profile wise, still very similar. We're still going to have it say lighter, um, at the bottom and then heavier at the top, but that band now is helping decelerate it and helping slow things down. Mm. Um, and I say, when we start to look at the, almost that exercise equation that you looked at earlier, when we're looking at the resistance is the moment arm times weight, that's in a static scenario. Um, but as soon as we've got movement, we've got the moment arm times weight plus or minus the inertial effects. Mm. So the ends of ranges when we're trying to stop it and then push it through or we're trying to start it. Um, we've got to have an idea of what effect inertia is or isn't having. And that's almost like the, the hidden, in a sense, like the hidden resistance. Because it's mm. like all these things that's so hard to see. That's another one that's extremely hard to see. Mm. And there was, there was me going, do we need to define inertia? And they were talking about banding and stuff. That was an idiotic comment. I apologize for that. <laughs> um, the, uh, but I think, yeah, resistance change. It's an easy way to think about it. So if something has a lot of inertia, it's got a lot of resistance to being changed in whatever direction it's traveling so if it's traveling up and it's got a lot of inertia it means it wants to keep going up because it wants to resist being changed from that that direction so that's a nice way of looking at it um so yeah i like it um 
Yeah, I think that's all the technical terms we need to define. Would you agree? Anything others? Any others that you would chuck in there? No, I think that's good. Sounds any, good. Any Irish terms that we need to be aware of, guys? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> uh, okay. So, in terms of why we'd use bands, then, um, like. I mean, we've kind of referenced it already, but the, uh, I mean, James, do you want to jump in and talk about one of the main reasons we use bands? The initial idea of using bands, or we can say like accommodating resistance, so things like chains and stuff like that would come into play, would be able to try and change um, the profile of the movement. So a change at what point is it going to be a bit heavier and what point is it going to be a bit lighter? Mm. Um, that was like the first thought to it coming in. And then, People start using it in different ways. People start attaching to the bodies around their knees, so many different places around their hips, whatever it may be, around their shoulders to try and keep their scapula down, doing lateral raise movements, you name it. Um, people try and bring them in different ways. But the initial reason almost there, I think they were brought in, was to try and change that, that resistance profile um, as we go through a movement. Mm. I don't think there was any considerations for the inertial effects early on. Mm. Um, I don't think people thought that deeply into it, um, but that's something that as people have used it more, become more of an understanding that we need to um, be aware of the effect that's having. At least, at least, like that, that's that those points are definitely true as it relates to um, these us. Like the, the, we're involved in the gym for kind of physique development and stuff like that. But if you're in sport, like they, they, those, like the inertial effects, like things like like rapid acceleration, those things are definitely considered more but i suppose like that's that's the problem is like some people look at like how they're applied in sport for an athlete who's let's say trying to develop like maximal acceleration or maximal like deceleration like that application like over speed training and stuff as you'll see in baseball as well and stuff like that um like those applications are probably different to what we're talking about here we're probably talking mainly about people who are you're interested in developing muscle tissue for for health purposes or for for physique purposes or even just like maintaining a healthy body and healthy musculoskeletal system in the long term. So, so that's the, you're definitely right in that sense in that I don't think, I don't think people ever think about it in relation to that. And I would even go even further and say that most people that are in the gym, like I, the thing is we're, we're trapped in a bubble. Like the guys you follow are the guys and girls that you follow are people who are probably, they've been to RTS or they have some awareness of like what a, a profile is Whereas like most of the people in gyms using bands are using it because it gives you the squeeze, bro. You yeah. know, constant squeeze. tension. You know, doing lats or doing doing rolls with bands because you know gotta get that constant tension. So, so I think it's important to realize, like you know, that we're definitely in a bit of a bubble here. Mm. When we're talking about profiles and stuff. Yeah. yeah. The amount of times um, I've seen a band attached to like a plate loaded pull down. Mm. <laughs> yeah. It gives me a better feel. I can feel that contraction more. Uh, so yeah, you just see it randomly applied to different things with no consideration of the profile. Yeah. Been, uh, there you go. You go. I know. I was just gonna say like I've been there. You know, yeah, I've been yeah. I've been that newbie in the gym, like just using bands on on different things because like feels good. Like and and you know even even as I got like a small bit more knowledge, it's like oh yeah, you gotta train everything in the short and range. It's all about that short and range. So I had some bands, you know. <laughs> but obviously, you just evolve over time. Some people are still stuck there, but you escape eventually. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, that's one thing we didn't talk about actually. Um, actually, we can talk about it now. But that, but that, before we do, like, there's gonna be a lot of people out there. And I saw it. Someone, I think, tagged me in something the other day, or they sent me something the other day. 
and and they were like um i think they were using they were using cables it was it was a dumbbell lateral raise or something they were using cables instead of dumbbells and they'd written um they'd written oh the cables provide constant tension um as dumbbells don't and i was like 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 they they i think they sent it to me to essentially just double check it was correct and i was like yeah like no in the sense of like a cable like you're still going to get constant tension from a dumbbell arguably like even in the bottom position there's still going to be a tiny challenge because especially if you have like a decent sized lat that's not actually going to prevent your arm from getting like fully in line with your your torso but the yeah. um you know if 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 you what the, the what the difference is is like the cable provides a more appropriate or more efficient for, like source of tension versus the dumbbell that kind of is a bit more inefficient same with bands like you put a band on a machine it doesn't mean it suddenly has constant tension it means you've just changed the way that tension is being distributed throughout the range, which is a good and a bad thing. And you put it on a pull down or a row, then it probably isn't a great, like the most efficient thing, but you put it on certain movements and it can be a really good thing. Um, but it's, um, yeah, the constant tension thing is, uh, is an interesting one. And it's definitely like, we're pretty much always dealing with constant tension. It's just how that tension is being yeah. distributed. Um, but speaking of which we didn't talk about how, how fatigue affects strength profiles, which could be quite hard on a uh, on a um, podcast. But if it, like, I think I mean, just knowing that the profile starts to flip round the other way. Yeah, I was so, going to say you you can do this pretty well, can't you? <laughs> so just if you guys can remember, Luke said initially when we're looking at a pushing profile, we're going to be weaker at the bottom of the movement and then stronger at the top. Partly we're going to be stronger at the top because of a structural strength, not so much a muscular strength. Um, but the more fatigued you get, and hopefully some guys or girls who have really pushed a failure have experienced this, that you can get off the bottom. You hopefully you haven't used inertia or you haven't bounced off the bottom or anything, but you can get off the bottom of the movement, but you start getting halfway up and you just can't finish the rep. Like suddenly it's got exponentially harder. So although structurally, in a sense, you're getting stronger, because that weight is almost going to, the line of force from that weight is going to go through, close to going through your elbow to your shoulder. Um, there's still going to be some moment arm there, so there's still going to be a distance to the elbow or to the shoulder, um, and we hit a level of fatigue, which that structural strength isn't enough. So we end up going in a fatigued pushing profile position from a position of strong to weak, so it flips around. So we were weak at the bottom, strong at the top, um, but the more we hit to that maximal failure point or the more extended sets or drop sets or later we use a push-in profile within the workout, the more it can start to maybe for them last couple of reps go from a position of strong to weak. Mm. Um, so we wouldn't want to add or we'd want to have a consideration for adding a band on say, I use the Smith machine press as an example again. We'd want to be aware of how fatigued we are going into the set as to whether we'd want to band up, how much tension on the band we'd want to use, um, or maybe if we're better just not using any band at all because the profile is starting to change a little bit because as our fatigue level just gets higher and higher. Um, and this is the same for legs, so like on a leg press or a pushing movement for legs, but honestly, most people won't go there. 
<laughs> like their the head will go, their mind will go before their actual structural ability to keep or and muscle ability, the combination of the two to keep pushing, pushing through. Um, mm-hmm. So it's more a thing on the upper body pushing that people experience um, rather than the lower body pushing. But just know that if you were to try and visualize that curve going sort of upwards um, as you're pushing through, so you're getting sort of gradually stronger, um, as you push through, it sort of flips around in a sense that the strength um, profile then drops down the other, the other way and just flips on its head in a sense. Mm-hmm. And the um, I think there's another another way of well, like that was obviously one way fatigue affects it as well. But then I suppose that's how fatigue affects it and how we fatigue across a strength profile in general is quite important to understand. So you get there's for those that know, like I referenced that single joint you know movement earlier like the bicep curl will be kind of weak in the extremes if we were to represent that graphically it would kind of look like a be basically a bell curve and where it'd be kind of lower each end and kind of peaking up towards the middle and and then dropping down again um the if we were there's a particular brand out there that's quite popular with some you know certain people and certain companies and stuff that permit you the ability to like load specific parts of a strength profile. So they say, Oh yeah, we're going to load the short position and then the length in position and then the mid range or whichever way you do it. Um, but for the, and the idea behind that is you can fatigue a muscle in a particular range, but what doesn't actually happen is you can fatigue a muscle in a particular range. Like you, you can like set up so that you're placing the most amount of tension in a particular range, but you'll fatigue in like unison across that whole profile it won't be like a specific point in the range that you'll fatigue and the others will remain unaffected you're basically just essentially fatiguing the muscle as a whole but you're just loading it really inefficiently throughout the entire process um which is important when we're going to talk about certain variations of banding and rdl where you can set it up so that yes you know you can you know, hypothetically put a band across your hips and, and set it up in a way that means you just challenge the shortened range, but you're therefore neglecting all the other parts of the range in terms of how well you could load those. And then you're, but you're also fatiguing yourself in a, in a pretty inefficient manner, which means it's going to probably negatively affect your performance across the rest of the session and just kind of reduce overall efficiency. Um, but essentially when you have these machines that, permit you to like load particular points in the range. If you really understand exercise mechanics and resistance profiles and strength profiles, there's probably only if like one or two settings on these machines that you'd only ever use because it's the kind like dare I say, it's a bit of a waste of time, for instance, to go on a leg extension and load it. So it's getting heavier in the top position. Um, and, and the same if you, you have a machine where you can load it so you get heavier as you get into the shortened position on a rowing movement, you're pre- being pretty inefficient based on what you're capable of producing force-wise throughout that range. So, so, yeah, it's basically like we don't fatigue at particular points in, in a strength profile. We fatigue across the whole thing. So try and keep your the, – the more we can match our exercises up to an entire strength profile, the more efficient we're going to be and the, the less – like the, the more the, the the less of an impact fatigue is actually going to have essentially would you agree yeah i think as well just adding to that knowing that when we do fatigue in a sense we're going to drop off at both of the ends more than we'd almost drop off in the middle yeah we're going back to that leg extension example if we're trying to just overload the shortened part we're getting nothing out of 
any other part of the movement at all. If them top two inches are where we're trying to overload, um, then the strength there is just going to drop off so quick. And we could almost go all day in the middle. Um, essentially think of that sort of bell curve and the two ends of it really drop off drastically. But in the middle, we can keep keep moving and sometimes just keep keep things going. Um, so yeah, if we were to load like that leg extension so it's getting gradually heavier as we go through, there's literally 95% of the movement where we're not getting anything out of. Yeah, yeah, yep. Amen. And it's the same thing you applied to multi-joint movements. And like, if we go back to that RDL, if you're going to band it, you know, if we essentially, we are getting mechanically weaker at the top of the movement and we then band it so we're getting really heavy there, like, you might not be the most efficient thing. Um, okay, yeah, we, again, the only reason we're strong at the top point is because of a structural point of view. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because that load is so close to us. Mm. And not from a muscular type of body. So if we add that muscular challenge, mm. then it almost gets to a point where we'd get halfway up in that mid range where we're going to be super strong. Um, and then as we'd normally get the drop off, cause that bar is getting closer to us. We've now got tension coming in, um, which is minimal from the, from the band there. Um, but if the glutes in it's obviously shorter position, we know it's going to be weak there. So that could um, negate the potential benefits of the exercise um, in a sense. Yeah. Mm. Or, or just essentially mean that you're going to have to, you know, create kind of a complementary profile across multiple movements, which is the same as like, if we, if we're presented with, if we don't have the tools available to create like a full range challenge across one movement, we'll always have to piece it together across a few. Um, so if we had a leg extension, for instance, that had just, you know, we couldn't manipulate that and it was always getting heavier as we got into the top position, we would categorically need, you know, a few other movements to be able to create a full range challenge to the quad versus where if we had a leg extension that was dropping off in an appropriate manner, we, we, we would be less, you know, in less need of having to use multiple movements to create that full range challenge. Um, so yeah, if we, if we're going to band the movement in a way that kind of neglects other points of the range, then we're going to have to find a way of, challenging those other points in an efficient manner across other movements. Yeah. I like it. I like it. People are nodding for those that can't see. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but I mean, what, what are we going to talk about? Like the role that bands can have with respect to guidance, support, restraint, things like that. What do you I reckon? think that's just in terms of how people use them sometimes, not necessarily knowing, yeah. knowing aware that how they use um, I've seen, again, I'm trying to think of other examples where I've seen it used. I've seen people use a band on like the hammer strength pull down across the hip. So they're trying to pull themselves in there. Mm. Uh, but say if you've got, obviously, unless you're at the absolute limit of the band and it can't increase in length anymore, there's still going to be some give there. So they're trying to create a stable position for that. Um, but it's not as stable as really could be if you just use, say, a seatbelt that didn't have any give give in it. Um, or if we're looking again at the banded RDL, if we're trying to teach the exercise and maybe add some guidance to the movement, uh, that could be a good application for it um, because it gives the people that ability to think about their hips almost pushing up and back. Um, so bands could be potentially used in certain scenarios to add a sort of a guidance to try and or virtual guidance in a sense to um, help the client think about 
what part of the body is moving in what direction and um, in where almost within space. Mm. Um, generally, they're not really used as a support to lock in, but again, you'll still see certain people trying to use them. The example I gave away, sometimes you see people almost, I've seen them like standing on a band and having the bands around their traps mm. to try and lock, lock their traps down when they're doing a lateral race. So don't use their traps, bro. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you don't allow them to come in so it's just that different application you'd see um within different gyms within the industry uh that wasn't necessarily for their initial purpose uh but start to get used used nowadays didn't you didn't you do one a while ago gaz where you were leg pressing and you had like someone holding a band around your knees like going so that you could uh, yeah about about I think it was like three years ago me and Patty yeah. did that yeah. uh, it was kind of, it was kind of like 50% trolling and 50% serious but like in general I probably wouldn't recommend that like I don't yeah. think like it's it, if you're super well held down on the yeah. leg press in terms of like where you're actually sitting yeah. maybe maybe that's beneficial but yeah. it kind of you otherwise you kind of run into the same problems that we'll discuss when we talk yeah. about like the banded RDL yeah. like it's a similar story with I see a lot of personal trainers do it here in Ireland where you set up a, a quote unquote like sissy squat where you essentially do a bodyweight squat, but you have a band around the knee, you know, pull it, pulling from the front, pulling anteriorly, so that it's all, it's almost like, oh, this is like a leg extension at the top. But again, you run into the, the same issue where you're going to, you're essentially going to fall forward before yeah. the resistance is in any way useful because you don't have that support yeah. of the upper body. Um, yeah. But yeah, they're the difficult things that for people to understand if you've never really explored, like yeah. where is the challenge coming from in exercise because otherwise it's just like oh well it's a band and i put it here and yeah. i feel it so it must be good yeah. You know? yeah there's a common one that she just reminds me of where people put a band like round a rack in front of them and then they put the band around the knee and they kind of just sta stand there they just kind of extend their knee yeah that's the one yeah. that's the yeah. one yeah. yeah yeah but and that, that actually does ch challenge the you know the quad but it's because the resistance is coming from the floor like the, the the fit with regards to friction on the floor there's a lot of friction in that scenario which is great in the challenge the band is just kind of able to do so but it's still not the most efficient exercise yeah um, and that won't get your vmo jacked <laughs> sure <laughs> if you already have jacked vmos it might it might uh you might be able to make that claim but no one's ever going to be able to test it are they <laughs> what got me my vmos bro um but uh but yeah like this is like what we're talking about there's like different you know depending on where we're you know points of application of effort it's usually not you know we'll talk about a hip thrust at some point i'm sure um like it it isn't the bar that's providing the challenge it's something else um but anyway um in terms of properties of bands how much percentage deformity is is, is happening what, what are we what are we going to talk about there I think that's just, uh, in terms of application, very, very simple, but people don't consider it. Yeah. It's just the band you're using on the machine, on yourself, or however you're using it, how much is it changing length? Yeah. Um, and is it near its elastic limit? Yeah. Because it doesn't gradually increase in tension. When it gets near its elastic limit, it'll exponentially just yeah. shoot up, and it won't necessarily get any longer but the tension could still be increasing when it does reach that. Mm. Um, so, and people never really seem to try and have a appreciation for the starting length of the band compared to the finish length. 
um, and then looking at the relative range of movement they go through. So if I give you an example, say for instance, a leg, 45 degree leg press compared to a Smith machine squat. The distance traveled from that foot plate on a 45 degree leg press for a lot of people is going to be very small. Then compare that to the distance traveled on a Smith machine squat is going to be twice the distance. But you'll see people just chuck the band, say two green bands, the Pullum Sport ones, the key, a lot of the ones that people use. Um, I think they're 41, 41 inches are the key ones that people generally use. They'll attach two of them together, put them around the back pad. Um, and depending on, or anyone, depending on getting on there, it could be a taller person, a shorter person, they're all going to use the same setup. Mm. Um, similar thing when they maybe go on the Smith machine. So we need to start having an appreciation for the length of the band we're using, mm. the, the distance we're moving through, because you do get shorter bands out there. Everyone uses their the 41 inch pull them sport ones, but I've got some that I think are like 20 inches, some that are 12 inches, some they're all from pull them sport. I've got some that when I went out to um, RTS and do sort of that with Tom in Oklahoma, I've got a selection of his bands as well, um, which are all short ones that when I double them up, the band length, the starting position is like five, six inches. Mm. So then when you go through a range on the leg press of maybe 12 inches, you've doubled the band length at least. Mm. Uh, so then you're relatively getting an appropriate drop off in that bottom position or appropriate additional load as you're going through. But sometimes people are adding bands and then maybe taking 10, 15, 20 kilos off a 200 kilo load, mm. whatever the load might be. So um, I think it's something that's very simple to apply, but just most people don't even think about looking at it. Mm. Uh, they're not even aware of different band lengths. They're not even aware of using daisy chains um, and carabiners to extend the length of the band. So rather than attaching sometimes two bands together, it might be better to use carabiners to extend the length of the band and attach that to the machine. Uh, and the longevity of the band is going to last, last longer as well. Because as soon as you start attaching bands together and putting around bits of kit, bits of metal, um, there's a likelihood that at some point in time they may snap or, or go and your last thing you want that is a top banded uh, <laughs> <laughs> leg press and have that leg press come down and squash you. Mm. Which is a big one. Like, like the, you know, people use bands all the time that kind of have like tears in them and stuff like that. Like the minute, and Mike Michael's always saying this on RTS when he talks about this, but like the minute you get even a single tear in a band, just chuck it because it's not safe. Yes. Not at all safe especially when you're handling big loads and that band is taking a big percentage of that load. It's, um, it's pretty dangerous. But the, uh, but the daisy chains are funny one. Cause I, I routinely see people setting daisy chains up and it, it like, cause we, I think, like Tom Purvis obviously pioneered it. I think hypertrophy coach made it popular. Um, we, we, we use it. I think all three of us will have used daisy chains at some point. Um, and then our following have used them as well, but we kind of get people now that like use daisy chains where it's more of just they don't they don't clearly don't understand how to use it, and they'll be you know I've seen people setting up like Smith machine presses where the band doesn't actually ever touch you know doesn't actually ever increase in tension. They've kind of just got this band hanging on a daisy chain that doesn't do anything, and or maybe it touches the bar very very slightly, but yeah. maybe maybe it takes off five grams of weight. <laughs> But that's it. So, like, if you're if you're getting into the like using daisy chains and manipulating band lengths and doing all that stuff, then then make sure you understand that you know 
the point of using them is to be able to, you know, really be specific about where that band is kicking in and how much load it's being able to take and things like that. And yeah, so it's not something to just fuck around with for no reason. I think but, it's having the, the idea as well going into it was, are you trying to use it to change the resistance profile? Yeah. Uh, are you, or are you trying to use it to increase, Look cool. increase the effect of inertia? Yeah. Um, because at what point is that band kicking in and throughout the range? And then how much does it kick in as well? So we've got to try and before, rather than just randomly applying it, knowing the reason behind why we're applying it as well. Mm. Mm. Nice. So we're thinking band placement. I mean, we, should, we, we, should we transition this into talking about an RDL now, like specifically? Yeah. Um, what do you reckon? So, Gaz, what do you reckon about... Well, I mean, we can just talk through... I mean, we've kind of talked through a regular RDL and, like, assuming it's essentially a single-jointed movement with respect to the hip extensors. Um, yes, there's a challenge to all the guys in the spine. Yes, there's some demand around the knee, but not, you know, tiny demand and that all depends on how we're positioned there um you know demand around the upper back in the sense of like in the scapular musculature holding the bar and things like that um but like the movement itself we're essentially going from like a weak position at the top to a pretty strong position at the bottom um because we're not really going to be reaching you know like maximal hip flexion if we're in like a, a knee extended position we're going to be somewhat limited by like passive insufficiency of the hamstrings um, so we're not probably going to be getting into an extreme range of hip flexion that would permit a huge um, drop off in in strength there. Um, Just a back pedal set. What's passive insufficiency? Passive insufficiency would be. I mean, oh, damn it! What have you got? A really good, easy definition of passive insufficiency, Gaz? Really good, easy definition. Um, I would just, I would just simplify it as like when you have, especially when you have a, a multi-joint muscle like the hamstring, the crosses, the hip, and the knee. If you essentially lengthen that at both joints, it's not going to be very good at producing force. That's my yeah, yeah. quick and easy definition. Yeah. So we, we, yeah, essentially we, we've lengthened the ham in in this instance we've lengthened the hamstrings from the hip, and we've lengthened it from the knee, or lengthened them from the knee. So and that like given that it's essentially three and a half hamstrings, we're talking about the big three <laughs> biceps femoris, semi tendinosis, semi membranosis. They're all getting into a pretty lengthened position that isn't going to permit any any further lengthening. Um, but also it's going to permit a very poor degree of force reduction, which, you know, you could then make the case that we are getting into a somewhat weak position, but the fact that the glutes, we've got the adductors, um, like some of the bigger hip extensors, which are able to contribute and probably have a little bit more mechanical advantage in that position. We, we would still be safe to say we'd be quite strong at the bottom it's just going to restrict the range which is why if we went into like a you know a knee flex position like in a hip thrust we would probably have more range at the hip because we're, we're removing that challenge of being in a you know having passively insufficient hamstrings um so anyway so we, we've we've we're kind of going into that you know what would we say strong position at the bottom weak position at the top what would happen then if we banded that on, you know, applied a bar, a band to the bar in that movement? What do you reckon? Gas? Yeah, like essentially, if you if you if you're applying a band to a bar, a band to a bar, yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you apply the, a band, some sort of band or accommodating resistance to an RDL, where essentially just moving at that one joint, the hip joint primarily, like you're essentially going to get to the top and 
it's going to be very it's going to be very difficult the bottom is going to be a little bit easier and essentially you're loading up a position in which you're not going to be able to produce that much that much force and what I, like in terms of like actual practic, practical how, practically how this plays out what you tend to see is that when people do that they end up going into a little bit more flexion at the spine they tend to flex the knee a little bit at the top and they do that kind of hitch you know that's what i often see at least when people when people do that where, where you know even if even if it was like you could almost see this in the way people like finish off a, a deadlift in a powerlifting context when they get off the top they might have that extra little bit of knee flexion a little bit of spinal flexion and then you kind of jerk it out you know it's almost like you just finish it with the spine and that little bit of knee extension as opposed to purely the hip extensor so you sort of end up with with that pattern in this case so like in general even though it might it might feel good in some cases it's probably not the best application of using a bend um that might be different if you're if you're starting off with the knee flexed which some people do you know some people do use more knee flexion on a quote-unquote rdl um, and that's that's when you just get into the the semantics of exercise is it a romanian deadlift is it a stiff leg deadlift is it a dorian deadlift or whatever you yeah. want to call it <laughs> yeah it's true so in terms of um like how you know if we're looking at the efficiency of, of that movement in terms of the strength profile would you argue that by banding the bar itself we're, we're essentially detracting from being you know or like removing our ability to load the hip extensors in a more efficient way yeah like i think i think what you'd what you'd probably see if you were to actually measure it over a long enough period of time of time is you'd probably see maybe a little bit less hamstring hypertrophy and maybe a little bit more glute hypertrophy because you do actually see that in in some research on like partial on like partial squats like where where the the glutes tend to be working a little bit more towards the top position but as you get closer towards that top position as the hamstrings essentially lose any ability to produce force because of their internal moment arms i think that would compromise the challenge of the hamstrings quite a bit i'm not sure if you agree with that i'd probably say yeah yeah i definitely agree with that yeah, yeah. um which would be interesting we need someone to volunteer to just do a banded you know top banded rdl for like for like yeah. a year, yeah. <laughs> and we, we measure the outcomes. <laughs> <laughs> get a twin study and get someone to do a or a triplet study. We could do and then a top banded RDL, a regular RDL, and a hip banded RDL. Yeah, the guy, the guy that hip bands it would actually lose muscle mass. <laughs> <laughs> but but it it is actually a good point to bring up because like often I think when people hear the discussions that we're having about these things, like we're really like getting into the nuances. And I think what people forget is that like, if you have some degree of variety in training over time and you're not doing totally ridiculous exercises, your outcomes are going to be pretty good. You know, <laughs> once you train hard and, and you, and you sleep well and you, you eat enough calories and protein, etc., like you're going to have like pretty decent outcomes. And it's, it's very difficult a lot of the time to quantify exactly what difference the things we're talking about might actually have because one of the things that you know we talk we're talking about a lot is things like resistance profiles and if you actually look into the research it's like oh there's actually not a strong like evidence base for doing all this stuff however like there's good there's definitely good theoretical rationale that that you can you can make based on all the stuff that we've talked about but there's also like secondary effects in that like as you begin to change the way in which you apply resistance at different ranges of motion, that can also have effects on regional hypertrophy. And then you might expect to see different, like different areas of, it's a, it sounds very bro sciencey, but different 
parts of muscles growing differently because of the way in which the resistance is applied. So I think that's a place, that's an area of this discussion that's probably like hasn't been discussed very much that I think we'll see a lot more of in the future. Because I think if you were to, if you were to purely actually go only down this line of optimizing the resistance profile of everything, you could potentially actually lose out on some hypertrophy benefits um, as well, like in, in some parts of muscle. So you can definitely make the case for having things that are less optimal at points in time as well, I think. So, so there's a, an argument for variety for sure. Mm. And I think that as well comes into, like tempo definitely enters into that. Like, you yeah. Do, you know, the difference. And, and it's la- I'd largely wager it's down to inertia. You get people doing movements that are somewhat suboptimal, but they're kind of accelerating through eccentrics and then having to stop that load really aggressively at the bottom. Like that is actually is going to cause a different response with regards to someone who's kind of doing slow, deliberate reps. You know, it's, it's, there's different things going on, um, which is, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's probably going, I don't know, further than we need to go today. <laughs> but the um, conversation yeah. for another day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that'll, yeah, be, yeah. that'll be the next, the next Skinny Gaz episode. <laughs> but the, um, I forgot what I was going to say there. Um, the, yeah, I oh know. So with regards to the band on the bar, like one of the things, it kind of goes back to what James was talking about in terms of the percentage of deformity in the band and like the elastic limit. Like if we're applying a tiny band to an RDL, you know, to the bar in an RDL, like the bat, that the increase in tension from that band is probably so minimal that it's not really going to change the actual effect of the movement. If we if we're applying a huge band, um, it is going to, you know, that the increase in tension in the band is going to probably be enough to kind of overcome that the the structural strength that we'll have at the top from being like longitudinally loaded. But the um uh so I think again it comes down to the type of band you're using. Um there's gonna be people that are applying a t- a little band and if you want to keep doing that go for it. It's probably no different to just doing a regular RDL really. You're probably maybe adding a few kilos of extra load at the top, but given how much stronger we'd be structurally at the top, um depending on where you place that that in your workout of course in regards to fatigue and stuff but um it probably won't make a big difference do you agree yeah yeah like i think i think you could potentially make the case that like using a little bit of of band like reverse band tension at the bottom of an rdl could be helpful for someone let's say if you find that every time you get to the bottom position when you're doing a really controlled rep you you kind of jerk into flexion and you kind of lose your shit. You do, like it could even be psychological that you're just not comfortable in that position. That using that little bit of band resistance could give you the just that small little bit at the bottom to keep your positioning for the rest of the rep. So yeah. I suppose they're they're the more practical considerations yeah. that a trainer on the ground in the day to day can spot with their clients, mm. but they're not going to be like general recommendations at mm. all. Yeah, that's where the band application is more to reduce the effects of inertia rather than change. Yeah, that's not. Yeah, I like it. So how about um, what? So actually, well, we can still talk about you know, there's different ways we could attach to the box. I know you've done one in the past, James, where you've had the band pulling kind of anteriorly as opposed to um, straight down to the floor. Like, would that be an application that you'd still use in terms of? Because I think the idea behind that was increasing the amount of challenge to the guys around the scapula. Hmm. So would that you? almost you end up having to do the opposite thing to with a band around your hip pulling you backwards. Mm. You have to yeah. lean back excessively yeah. to make that band do anything. Because if not, it'll just pull you forward. Yeah, which would essentially 
make it more of a quad challenge now. <laughs> but the yeah. um, depending on how heavy the band was, but then that, like having, I mean, I've done that. I remember when when you posted that. Yeah. I, I remember doing it. I had other people do it as well. And it does if you get you know enough. There's definitely a bigger demand on the guys around the scapula, but it just becomes the fact that once you then either once you put too much load on the bar, it kind of negates the presence of the band. But then also, if you use too heavy a band, then it just becomes a challenge to stay upright. Yes, yeah, yeah. So it's not a thing. You've got to excessively lean back um, yeah. when you start to challenge the band. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, I think that's um, so that's banded on the bar in kind of you know vertical manner horizontal manner we used to call that it was kind of horizontal banding um reverse banding again we talked about there briefly in terms of like reducing inertia at the bottom of the movement um again essentially providing the same same you know intervention that banding it from the bottom up would would provide um how about um banding it around the hip yeah, like this, 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 this is actually something that I did. Like I was, I was, I was informed recently that this exercise has been originated by like specific people, and I was like, oh, I didn't actually, didn't actually know that. But like when I first did this exercise, I did it back in like 2015, which is a long time ago when you're only 24. You know, that that's like, you know, almost like 1980s for you, James. You know, so that's what that that's what that feels like for me. But I remember doing that exercise back in like. 2015 so I was whatever age like 20 so like I was just getting into thinking about exercise that bit more and I was like oh this is a super cool idea man you know I'm gonna gonna put this band around my hip and it's gonna increase the amount of work that the hip extensors have to do because you know the I'm, I'm challenging hip extension but it just doesn't end up working out the way you think it would okay so that's the basic theory that people tend to use it for is that you're challenging the ability to, to extend the hips because it's very similar to a barbell hip thrust, or at least it looks like that. But the very big difference here between an RDL with a band around your hips and something like a barbell hip thrust is that you have nothing behind your back. Okay, so when you're doing a barbell hip thrust, you're supported at the at the back, at the spine, by being on a bench. And that's similar to other like hip extension machines. So in that case, the application of load across the hips does add quite a bit of a challenge to the hips, but it's via the support points at the, the foot and at the back. Mm. But when we're doing something like an RDL, it, the, the, the biggest moment down that, that 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 band is essentially adding is to the foot slash angle slash floor. So the main challenge is actually staying upright. So there can be secondary effects here in that when you begin to lean forward into that band that you, you know, you're, you're forced to lean forward and that increases the moment down to the hip because you can put the bar a little bit further forward. But I don't think that the, that, that is beneficial over simply doing a regular RDL and or a different exercise. You know, if you really want to turn that exercise into one where you're really leaning forward, then it seems like a far better idea to just use something like a 45 degree hip extension yeah. uh, where the exercise is set up well for that. You've got support at the ankle joint as opposed to having your client risk falling over <laughs> falling over a band in the gym, you know, because I wouldn't want that to happen anyway. And that goes back to the point about bands and their, their like peak, peak tension, you could say, and the elastic limit. Like if you're really leaning forward with 140, 180 kilos there and you're leaning into that band, like I wouldn't want to risk it. And I might risk it, but I wouldn't have one of my clients risk it anyway. <laughs> yeah. And that's, um, I was, I was going through this with, um, with Michael and we kind of actually drew up the maths because I know I threw out the math, maths of, of this before in a very basic manner which was that torque, torque equals force times moment arm um, 
you know, if we need a moment arm for there to be a talk demand, and it doesn't matter how heavy the band is, like if that band is on the hit, there's a zero moment arm, so we mm-hmm. can have zero talk. That's the easiest way, but then you can get people going, oh yeah, but you can use the band. So basically, we know that there's no challenge directly coming from the band, like you can indirectly create a challenge by using the band as a support to lean the body into. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't pan out <laughs> like when we see people doing this all the time we never see you know you get these big guys lifting quite a lot of weight and they're essentially performing a normal rdl because the weight of that bar is enough to shift the center of mass back to where it would be on a normal rdl so the band is kind of the presence of the band is, is there more as a guidance um thing like james mentioned earlier like using the yeah. band to try to drive the hips through but if we're going to have someone like let's entertain the idea that you could sit you know lean forward onto the band if you were going to for the math geeks out there, like you, if you were going to calculate this, you'd basically need to calculate essentially the yeah you know, the force at the foot and then the force at the hip, which would mean you'd basically need like the total weight of the body and the bar. So if we take like a hundred kilo individual who's lifting a hundred kilo bar, um, you basically need the total combined mass times the moment arm to the foot from the you know from the uh, the, the combined center of mass of, of the, the bar and the body. And then you need to work out the amount of, um, you know, the, essentially the moment onto the hip of everything above the band, which would be, you know, the mass of the body above the hip, which would be, you know, if it's hundred kilo individual, you could say that's about 60 kilos of upper body weight plus the bar to the hip. And then you'd basically have to, you know, do some calculations and figure that out. And it would, it, it basically works out that if you had a hundred kilo individual lifting a hundred kilo barbell, the amount of tension you'd need on the band to support their body weight would be about 80 kilos. And that would be, you know, there's not for a hundred kilo individual RDLing a hundred, a hundred kilo bar. That's pretty light. Um, so if we were, um, you know, dealing with a normal hundred kilo individual they're probably we'd probably be pushing up to the realms of like you know someone who someone who lifts well you know is a strong lifter and stuff you'd be pushing up to the realms of you know, 180 200 kilos but in the 100 kilo barbell instance you'd need 80 kilos of band tension which is you know an absurd amount of band tension to be able to support your body weight um and it's probably quite rare that you'd even find that amount of band tension um in a or you'd you'd need an obscenely thick band um to do that but then the minute we start pushing up to 140 160 80 200 kilos the amount of band tension you're going to need is going to go up you know insanely high um so yes there's that that idea that we could use you know a band to create a forward lean but you're never really going to be able to practically ap- apply that because the amount of band tension you need is so insanely hard. Um, and then you, but there's been videos of some people like essentially doing this movement with a forward lean, but they're not actually forward leaning in the manner that, that, that was shown in the, in these diagrams that were put out where they're still, they're not actually getting into that fully shortened position of the glutes anyway, because they're still having to break from the hips because they're actually having to bring that bar closer to their feet despite having the forward lean because they've still got to obey the laws of physics and not fall over through the band, which isn't heavy enough to support the combined weight of their body in the bar. So it's um, basically like to, to use a hip banded variation of the RDL. You, if you're light enough, if you're a 40, 40 kilo woman or 40 kilo female, 50, 40, 50 kilo individual, 
using a pretty in you know like insignificant amount of weight you might be able to facilitate enough for forward lean because you wouldn't need that heavier band tension if you're trying to load the glutes in any sort of efficient manner you're not going to be able to um find enough band tension to support that unless you just use something that was able to receive that the weight of the bar and your body efficiently which would just be a 45 degree hip extension bench so if that's what you're going for just use a 45 degree um so that got quite technical bottom line is there's no real reason why banding yourself around the hip in an rdl leads to any more of an efficient challenge than not so i think we can put that one to bed yeah and like that's that's good news for people as well because like I, i think i always think of this in terms of like taking a scientific perspective on exercise should not always be about adding in more and more and more and more things okay because yeah. that makes people's lives harder if you have to worry about doing more exercising and adding adding more to exercises then that's just more frustrating and more burdensome for the individual yeah. like ideally in an ideal world you'd just be in a gym where all machines were set up perfectly for everyone and you just go away and train you never think about any of this you know that, like that's the ideal world so so like don't don't think that oh no i can't do a banded rdl anymore or i shouldn't because the boys said it's bad it's like you should be like oh no this is great now i don't actually have to bother adding that band i just do the exercise yeah. and exactly. get the benefit it's like yeah. simple yeah. and we've already established so if we had that a normal rdl where we're kind of pretty you know reasonably strong at the bottom getting into a weaker position and that exercise is going to be hardest at the bottom and it's getting easier as we go up that's close to a full range challenge for a lot of people so that's actually a pretty efficient movement and if you then add a band around your hip to try and only target the top position the short position you, which comes back to what we spoke about earlier with how fatigue affects the strength profile and everything like that, how we fatigue across the strength profile, you're going to be neglecting, like, you, you, by training just a shortened position, you know, you're not really doing anything more magical, like you're still going to be fatiguing yourself in other parts of the range, but you're not going to be challenging yourself there as well as you could. Um, so it's basically just detracting from how efficient you can be in the gym. Um, and like there's you know, there's no motive here in terms of like it's like what Gaz said, the only motive here is is put out, you know, information that makes people's lives easier when it comes to structuring sessions in the gym. There's no like that we're not trying to plug the fact that we use a particular movement in our programming or anything like that. Like this is just like here's a movement that people do and here's what's actually going on and here's why you might here's how you can be more efficient and it's probably just by removing the band. Um, because and if you're someone who you know look at like people like JP look at people like Cal um, look at people like uh, I mean people unintentionally do it there's a lot of people that are RDLing with a band around their hip and they're using a considerable amount of weight it looks like a normal RDL because it is a normal RDL the weight of the bar is so much more than the weight of the band so all they'll be like Cal uses it in his because it's just a guidance you know, to something for him to focus on in terms of the direction of driving his hips. If you want to use it for that, go for it. Is as a method of providing extra challenge to the hip extensors, it's not it's not at all efficient. Comes back to that thing initially, like using it more as a, a guidance to as a virtual guidance to can guide the motion. Yeah. Um yeah. add load to the exercise. Yeah. And and yeah, and there's gonna be people out there that really, really still refuse to accept this and that's absolutely fine. That's their prerogative. Like if they want to do that, go for it it is maths like some of the smartest people in the industry of exercise mechanics and in the realm of exercise mechanics all, all would you know that, that i'm not saying like you know referencing us indirectly there that's not us like some people like tom purvis like michael goulden like 
I mean, I would put skinny gas in there, but he wouldn't take it. <laughs> but, Definitely, but, the, but, the, um, but the, um, you know, Jacques <laughs> Taylor, these guys that have been studying this for 20 years, they know the maths and so that they would, you know, they, they agree that putting a band around your hips and not yeah, there's no, there's no rational reason why you do it. And mathematically it doesn't make sense. And ultimately exercise mechanics, as much as people like to look at it as kind of a, an airy fairy, cool practical thing, it is maths. And, um, and if you're if you're trying to argue against maths, it's 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 a bit silly. Um, but if you want to if you want to make an argument for something because it um, you know it, it fits in with what you're trying to do as a company, then go for it. Um, it doesn't mean it's right. But you should just like in general, like it's exercise. Like you should never ever ever same with nutrition. Attach yourself emotionally to a specific yeah. exercise because it just doesn't matter. It's yeah. irrelevant. They're all made up. Everything. <laughs> like yeah. they're all literally just made up. Yeah. I don't care if I don't care if it's a back squat, if it's a deadlift, if it's a bench press, like it doesn't matter how much you love it, it's just made up. Okay. Yeah. So like it, it goes back to the same more basic discussions, but obviously most of your listeners are so far past at this point. You know, most trainers in most gyms are gonna be like, Bro, squat bench deadlifts, machines are for pussies. You know, like, <laughs> like like that's that's what you're dealing with with ninety percent of, yeah. of the fitness industry. Like that's that's most people's perspectives. And it all stems from not being able to step back and detach yourself emotionally from things that are a little bit more objective, you know, things like exercise, things like nutrition, the underlying principles, the underlying science. If you only care about truth, then this is a much easier process because you can just be like, Oh yeah, actually cool. I used to tell all my clients to do that exercise, but now I won't. I'm going to tell them I was wrong. You know, I do that all the time. As I said, I've done the banded RDL. I've yeah, even done, I've, I've even done the banded RDL. Haven't we? Yeah. I've even done the thing you talked about, James, with the, the band around the traps, you know, with the, the ladder raise. Like I did that years ago because I thought it was such a good idea because you don't want to use those traps, bro. You know, it's, it, and it, we, so we've all done these things. We've all yeah. done these stupid things. And I think one of the things that can be intimidating for listeners sometimes is they think that people like us are looking down on them and saying, ha, you're all idiots. But no, it's more like me looking back at my former self and being like, yeah. God, you idiot. Let's make yeah. sure other people don't make yeah. those mistakes. Literally. You know, like, like that is the goal. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's it. We're, like, th- that's the whole reason. Is, like, uh, all we're trying to do is save you from making the mistakes <laughs> we've made. Which is, um, like, you know, in that, that's, um, you know, I mean, if, we don't, if, you don't, if you don't want us to do that, then say we won't do any more podcasts like this. <laughs> but, the, um, but yeah, it's... it's um, that's that's it's, that's the motivation here is just trying to make people's lives more like easier and make their training more efficient and avoid the shit that we have to do which is why we got into the education thing that's it yes sir mm. so the um i think the last thing to cover which is one of your points james is like how band placement can influence the fact that path of motion may be the same or different to the resistance would you reckon uh, I think that just goes back to the point that like, if you were bottom band in it, uh, so you're bottom band in the bar, then it's the bands in the same line as the resistance. Mm. Uh, but then if we start pulling the bands, pulling the bar forward or the bar backwards or the bands pulling us forward or backwards in some direction, then that starts just to make the calculations almost of what's going on uh, sometimes confusing because you've got these two lines of forces that are coming in um, and affecting. So I think that's that's very tough to try and describe what's going on um, just on a, on a podcast. But I think obviously your description, Luke, of everything with the band pulling back um, through the hip and then the weight of the bar pulling down, really good. So yeah, there wasn't too much more to add to that, but no, just knowing that if we're adding a band that's pulling in a different direction, 
than the resistance is pulling, mm. uh, then it just makes things more confusing, really, at this mm. stage. And then we just need to be, be aware of mm. that. I think I missed that. Um, I sort of thought was, I lost the signal there, but... Moffat, actually, you're fine. Okay. The um, so the I think yeah, what you just said that um, kind of threw back because I don't think there's going to be people out there that like oh, just, let's just clear this up now. If we we put a band around our hip, they're going to be like oh yeah, but it's you know it's pulling me back. Like like we said, there's no moment onto the hip. That I think I covered this loads. I can't remember where the gas did, but the biggest challenge is the fact that it's pulling your whole body back. So the challenge is to the feet. So where we have that, you know that thing where we're having to lean forward that's just a orchestrated solution to not falling over um and if people want to test this i said it on my story put a band around your waist hand it to your mate and get your you know stand still and then get your mate to walk back as far as he can with, with respect to how far that band can stretch and uh you you'll there'll be a point where you'll tilt forward to stop yourself from falling over but once that band tension is heavy enough you're you're going to be flat in your ass um, so put something there to catch you <laughs> but the um it's um yeah the, the the biggest challenge is to the ankle so it's like where we spoke about it's it's, it's a challenge to standing up once the band is heavy enough um that's it so um yeah that's that's pretty much covered i think we covered everything we needed to do there so we pretty much covered everything there but there was one area we didn't really go into enough depth on um just after listening to it back um which i know has come up in other people's discussions of this movement and i thought i'd attempt to clarify things here um and that area is friction and its role in the banded rdl um because there are certain things that have been said about its role some things people have been led to believe and i know it's potentially an argument people will fall back on so i just wanted to clarify why its presence doesn't really mean a lot and why it doesn't really pan out as a decent argument here um forewarning this little segment may get a little technical so for those who couldn't give a shit about the hip banded rdl and whether it's useful or not which is a point i'm nearing myself i'm not going to lie um feel free to skip over the next this could take 10 to 15 minutes um until you hear gary's lovely irish accent again and that will signify when i'm done going into this bit but um Anyway, we, we first need to define friction. So in, in the case, it, like in this case, we're dealing with static friction. So there's diff several different types of friction, and this is static friction. Um, and the force of static friction is a force between two surfaces that prevents those surfaces from sliding or slipping across each other. That's pretty much it. Um, that's actually a textbook definition for those that are wondering. Um, and, uh, and this is present everywhere in day-to-day -day life in the gym environment in the gym we see it in examples of things like a leg press like this is an easy one for you to see like there's a friction of the sled itself moving on the guide rods and b we have the ability to manipulate friction between our feet and the platform directly which people will probably be doing unintentionally not realizing for instance we can think about shoving our feet up on the platform essentially trying to extend our knee um, or knees um, this is a way of essentially biasing the challenge towards the knee extensors aka the quads um, as the challenge provided by friction here is coming in the opposite direction to which we're shoving our feet in other words friction will be trying to pull our tibias downwards into flexion um, the way to think about it is this if the platform on the leg press were made of ice we were 
and we were to shove our feet upwards, they would, of course, slide that way. Of course, it's not made of ice, and the thing that's preventing that from happening in the case of a normal leg press is friction. The force provided by friction is pushing back against our feet in an equal and opposite magnitude, and it has to be equal and opposite, because if friction was greater, our feet would obviously move down into, like our knees would go into flexion. If friction wasn't sufficient, we would our feet would slide up. And that can be the case where if we haven't got grippy enough shoes, if the platform isn't grippy, this is why platforms themselves have grippy bits on them to ensure that friction is adequate. Um, if friction is not adequate and someone starts, or if the grip isn't accurate, uh, adequate on your feet or on the platform and you started shoving up, your feet would slide. So that that's there intentionally, those, those grippy bits added to platforms. Um, when we do this, we have to take into account the additional line of force being provided by friction. In the case of multiple lines of force, we end up with the resultant force, that's what we'd call it, which is essentially the combination of all the forces we're dealing with in a given movement. So as an easy way to visualize this, um, like look at the, for those that have Google in front of them or something like that, Google the rectus femoris muscle, it's one of the four quadriceps and it has a very like unique architecture in that it's bipennate and it basically has a central tendon and the fibers either side of that tendon converge towards it so it basically looks like a bird feather and the fibers each side are actually pulling in somewhat opposing directions um, but the two lines of force in play mean we're actually dealing with one singular resultant line of force going straight through the middle so that central tendon is essentially the direction that's pulling in um, so that's the idea of a, of a resultant force but that's what we have to take into account when we have multiple different things in play in a movement so if we have friction in a movement we've got to account for the fact that friction will be changing the ultimate challenge to some degree if it's significant enough which is an important consideration so let's apply this to the hip banded rdl friction is undoubtedly present in this movement as as there is static friction between our feet and floor to pre prevent us from slipping um and that, that's a, we'll get to why that's the case later, um, because that isn't present in a normal RDL. Um, but I want to clarify why its presence isn't meaningful and why it sure as shit isn't an argument to fall back on to justify the efficiency of this movement. If we were standing straight upright with no forward lean, no band in a normal RDL, the friction we'd be dealing with at the foot would be non-existent because we haven't got anything trying to pull us um, you know, one way or the other with that bar is, and our mass going into the floor is going straight down. So there's no like sliding or slipping of our feet on the floor. In the case of the banded RDL, a forward lean could be an option, which would create a static friction force at the foot. Recall the ice scenario. If we were leaning forward onto a band, our feet would essentially want to slide out behind us. Um, so friction is coming back at us in the opposite direction. And an easy way to visualize it would be with it starting at our heels and being directed forwards through our toes and beyond. So it's coming from behind and going forwards. If we if we assume that friction being present in any degree of magnitude is enough, then we could stop there. And some others did that, which is misleading. Um, however, we need to establish a few things. Like one, how much friction we would roughly be dealing with. Two, what this friction is actually a product of. And three, whether or not this friction... Um, present is enough to counter the force being produced by the band which some have argued um, points one and two can kind of be covered together initially how much friction in the case of in the case that someone could maintain a strict forward lean a fair amount but because of the fact that there's no ankle support you're never going to be fully able 
like able to fully load yourself or load yourself to any significant degree because that friction and the, the challenge at the ankle is being unchecked um so it's pretty simple like we've already established that a hundred kilo individual lifting a hundred kilo barbell would require about 80 kilos of band tension to be able to support their body weight but this is forgetting a key consideration that fortunately the pioneers of the 45 degree hip extension thought of the more effort we apply with respect to pressing our hips into something or and if we push into something with any degree like if we if someone is um you know if someone stands still on the floor you've got you know you're, you weigh 100 kilos you've got 100 kilos of mass going into the floor you have 100 kilos of reactive forces coming straight back at you if i push into a wall the amount of force I push into the wall with is coming back at me. If I drive my hips into a pad or a band on a, you know, a banded RDL or a pad on a 45 degree hip extension, I'm dealing with reactive forces that are essentially trying to push me back um, the other way. And it's, it's going to be you know, the, the, the sturdier the structure we're pushing into, the more force we're going to be able to use. If it's something like a band that has a lot of give, we're never really going to be able to push into it with enough load. Um, it won't really be able to support us, but that's kind of diverging from the point a little like the more reactive forces, um, uh, well, anyway, so the, the more effort we apply with respect to pressing our hips into something whilst our knees are locked in extension, so let's say in like a 45 degree hip extension or banded RDL, the more reactive forces we're dealing with from this application of effort, which means the more forces are coming straight back at, at us in an equal and opposite magnitude as a result of pushing into the firm pad. And moreover, the more friction we're dealing with at the feet, which yes, would oppose the reactive forces coming from a hip because of the way friction's coming in at us, it's coming in the opposite direction, but there's no physical way that this force from friction would be sufficient on its own due to the fact that no shoe exists that is grippy enough to achieve this. We would have to essentially glue our feet to the platform in order to counter the reactive forces sufficiently and allow ourselves to load hip extensors to any significant degree. Um, and be prevented from tipping over or better yet we could use something behind our tibias and ankles to create stability by countering both friction and the reactive force being produced by shoving our hips into the pad um, and the fact that our mass is essentially trying to tip us over that fulcrum. Um, what is this device you ask which people surely are like oh my god if, if something existed that would be insane it does the ankle support on a typical 45 degree hip extension it's there for a very good reason if someone um, wants to know what i mean work up to your max load on a 45 degree hip extension with the ankle support then try it without and make sure there is someone there to stop you from face planting because without the ankle support that's that's what's happening so basically you know if you can do like 140 kilos or something on a, on a 45 degree hip extension like that's a lot but you, i've seen people do it let's say a more realistic load if someone can you know 45 degree hip extend 50 kilos and that you know that's quite challenging for them um because you've got you you're dealing with quite a lot of your body weight over that axis as well um so 50 kilos plus the mass of your torso do that with the ankle support remove the ankle support and try that as well you'll be uh you'll be that would be a pretty hard task um, because the ankle support is categorically needed to get that output from your hip extensors. We need that extra stability. So what tends to happen in a hip banded RDL? As we discussed, either the weight of the bar exceeds the weight on the band so much that the movement becomes a regular RDL as a cent the center of mass is basically shifted back to where it would be on a regular RDL, somewhere between the bar and the foot um, on the feet slightly biased towards the bar if we're lifting significantly more than our body weight um, 
were, and that obviously changes depending on how much load is on the bar. If the bar is less than how much we weigh, it's going to be shifted probably by us towards our body weight. If the bar weighs more than what we weigh, it's going to probably be the bar itself. Um, someone attempts to do a forward lean. So if so, in the case of someone attempting to do a forward lean, which has been done recently on social media in an attempt to demonstrate and justify this movement, um, if you watch these demos back, you'll see that the bar is still having to be held pretty close to the hips in the top position and the glutes aren't getting anywhere near, any like anywhere shorter than they would on a regular RDL because the lean that's happening is not whole body lean. It's coming from the like only the upper body shifting forward so they're essentially just tilting forwards from the body and slightly flexing through the spine um, whilst the bar and the hips stay over the feet because the band is not heavy enough in any of these examples to support the combined load of the body and the bar we all have to obey the laws of physics despite what we can draw in stick figure diagrams in the case of a 140 kilo barbell being lifted by a 100 kilo man you'd need about 110 to 120 kilos of band tension not 120 pounds which was shown where they obviously tried to preempt this argument um so 120 pounds on the band will not do that which is why that that movement didn't pan out as the diagram suggested in both these scenarios we can see that the friction demand at the feet is being negated by the shifted center of mass because the band is not strong enough to allow for a true forward lean and in the case that the bar is heavy enough, it just becomes a regular RDL. So we have the, the combined mass in the, of the body and the bar going straight down to the floor. And there's no real challenge to our feet being sl like sliding one way or the other. So we know that static friction isn't going to be present. Um, as uh, like The rest of point two, this kind of transitions into what is friction actually a product of? The static friction is a result of the forward lean, not the band. Um, this friction does not exponentially increase with the amount of forward lean present either. Um, the more we lean forward, friction will increase, but it will get to a point where that is still not enough to save us from face planting as we because we need the ankle support. Why? Because the more forward lean, uh, the more we lean forward, the more of our total mass is shifting away from our feet, which means the effect of friction we'll be having will be less and less effective. And eventually that mass will, or the mass of our body in the bar will far overpower the small contribution being provided by friction um, unless we find a way to glue our feet to the floor or provide support at the back of the ankle so so lastly point three does the friction have any ability to counter the force being produced by uh, being provided by the band which is something some have argued for and they claim that the presence of friction is what is creating the fulcrum for us to, for us to pivot around in this movement um, essentially cancelling out the challenge of the band um, and just make, making sure the band acts more as a, 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 a you know a firm pad like in the case of a 45 degree hip extension which if that's what you're relying on either just lose the band and perform a regular RDL standing straight up um, because we have the ability to pivot well through our hips given that the joint itself is designed to flex and extend in the sagittal plane that's we don't need a fulcrum there to do that um, and if that's what you're going for, just use a 45 degree hip extension. Um, if if is this the case though? Like, could you argue that that's the case? Like, no, we've already established that the friction of our feet being in contact with the floor is not enough to offset the reactive forces coming from a pad in a 45 degree hip extension. Nor would it be enough to counter the forces being produced by a heavy band around the hips. And if that were the case, then no forward lean would actually be required, as the friction would be enough to keep you upright. In, in a normal RDL, which it isn't. Um, so, to continue, like, well, to conclude, I'd say actually, this, 
you know, to conclude this additional little segment, which probably bore the shit out of some of people, but this is just to clear this argument up. Um, static friction is present in the hip banded RDL at the foot. Static friction is not capable of providing any significant ab uh, ability to keep someone from falling over. If it were, 45 degree hip extension benches needn't have a, an ankle support, but they do for a vague reason. Um, static friction being present is not a sufficient defense for the hip banded RDL being a valuable and efficient movement for training hip extension. If anything, its presence and the fact that there is no posterior ankle support available to check that to check it and and like essentially support the back of the leg and prevent that friction from being too much of an issue. Um, this movement means that yeah, you know, where it basically means you'll you'll only be detracting from your ability to load the hip extension in this movement. So for, if anything, friction kind of takes away from the fact like unchecked friction like this it just makes it harder to load your hip extensors. So it's basically not a particularly um, valid, valid argument, but also it just goes to show that if you want to be efficient in the gym, hip banded RDL is probably not the best thing to spend your time doing. If you want to load your hip extensors in an efficient manner, a regular RDL, we've, we've already discussed, it's probably superior. Um, if you want to do a hip banded RDL because you really enjoy it and you're probably someone who weighs light enough or you somehow have access to the most the heaviest bands in human history to be able to support this i would still say a 45 degree hip extension trumps it but if you wanted to crack on and do it then if you can be essentially suboptimal and inefficient with your time then go for it um it's not a bad movement it's just there are, there are better movements out there um and and you can definitely have movements that are better than others so that that's um you know there's there may not be bad movements but there are definitely movements that are better so i hope that clears that up don't really ever want to have to talk about this movement again. I've said everything I need to say on it now. Um, I, th I imagine Gaz and James are the same. Um, so I hope that was helpful. And now with the rest of the podcast. Yeah, I think a good place to finish it off would be to, you know, for the people who listen to this and they're like, well, I don't know what they talked about for the last hour. You know, I think it's a good good place to finish would be like, like what are the biggest wins for people in terms of like, all right, I've got a program. I've never used bands. I want to play around with it. What are the exercises that give the biggest bang for your buck for adding a little bit of, of band resistance in either direction? Like, what do you guys think? Like, the most obvious ones for me would probably be, like, things like leg presses, hack squats, pendulum squats. But it, it depends on how they're built. But most of the time, I think that's a, a fairly, fairly good mm. one. Some pressing exercises. What, what do you guys think? Mm. It's very similar. Say, Smith Machine uh, yeah. is a good one as well. So whether it's pressing, like upper body pressing or, um, like, lower body squatting. Um, on the Smith machine, definitely one that top banding can work pretty well. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And uh, with regard, it, it comes down to those movements where put, putting a band on will have a positive impact on kind of matching that strength profile and resistance profile, which is like the leg press, the hack squat, the pendulum squat, they're all going to be examples of that, given that we're kind of weaker at the bottom of the movement to some degree and stronger at the top. Once you know, This is assuming fatigue isn't involved to, to a great degree. Um, so like pulling a band on that, making that exercise essentially easier to some degree in the bottom position, harder at the top is kind of making the, the challenge a bit more appropriate throughout that entire range of motion. Um, so yeah, like example there, if we're fresh into a session, then maybe banding some sort of pressing, pressing movement would be a good idea. Um, cause again, if we, if we're at the end of a session, we've accumulated a lot of fatigue, putting a band on a pressing movement might not be the best idea because James spoke about earlier how that 
once fatigue's at that level, it will kind of flip on its head with respect to that the strength profile of a pitching movement. So putting a band on that might not be the best thing. Um, uh, like, you know, certain movements like, um, you, know, you know, single jointed movements, even though there's never really technically a single jointed movement, um, you know, it's not always the best idea to band those if we're getting a muscle close to a fully shortened position. I don't know if you guys would agree with that. Yeah. Um, same with like rowing movements, like any kind of pulling movement where we're pretty much always going to be getting into a weaker position. You know, there'll be machines that don't necessarily drop off, but adding a band to that won't help the situation. Um, and uh, so I think but banding kind of pulling movements isn't a good idea. Um, yeah. And I think if people are really, if there's coaches out there that are confused about this stuff, then, you know, reach out to us, reach out to, you know, Gaz triage method have the sickest online resource, which has just been made free. So anyone who isn't signed up to, is it still called the triage militia? Yeah. We're just going to have it on our, our site as um, just like articles. Like, yeah. and there, there are a number of articles on like the basics of exercise mechanics yeah. and stuff. Cause, cause I don't think like many people have actually put that into like yeah. written format out there. So yeah. like, just basically showing people like basic examples of like why torque matters, you know, blah, 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 the, the basics. Cause I think you, you actually do only have to understand a few key concepts yeah. and then really dig into application to be able to, mm. to apply this stuff. Like yeah. that's, that's my experience anyway, is that like a few key concepts of like understanding things like torque, moment arms, knowing where the line of force is. If you can like gather a few of those concepts together and then just go into the gym a lot of thinking, a lot of applying, and it's actually relatively easy to understand all that stuff. I think, yeah. anyway. Yeah, and like so, Gaz, Gaz and Paddy's website, triage, triagemethod.com. Yeah, triagemethod.com. Yeah, check it out. There's some sick stuff on there beyond just exercise mechanics. Actually, that's an awesome. I've been signed up to that for like two years now. I think um, the uh, like Michael Golden through Integra, people that are keen on doing RTS, go through that, go and do yeah, Michael's stuff. Because like, like all of us three didn't learn exercise mechanics from podcasts and stuff. So there's going to be a lot of people out there like, fucking hell, that is so difficult. We didn't learn this through a podcast. We learned it through you know, practical application and exploration in a gym environment, doing RTS and things like that, um, which is the best place to start. If this kind of gets you interested in it, that's cool. But you're not going to become amazing at it from listening to us talk about it until you can see this stuff unless you're someone that learns amazingly from listening and you've just made amazing perfect sense of everything we've said which in which case bravo um, but uh, but then there's also our course as well shameless plug like we we teach our own um uh practical courses uh we've actually got one this weekend like james said but there's there's another one in, in september or two in september but for people that are interested in in learning about this in a practical environment then again um get booked onto those um shameless plug but anyway um but i think that that's probably the best I, I mean would you guys suggest any other resources that people can go to to learn from this stuff yeah like i think if you if you if you want to like try and like level up your understanding and diversify it beyond just maybe the concepts discussed on rts or in the typical resistance training application like it's definitely worth digging into some biomechanics textbooks. There are some that are more practical than others, like Vladimir Zatiorsky. He's a biomechanist, and there you go. <laughs> that's that's the joint structure and function. But yeah. Vladimir Zatiorsky has a number of like the harder biomechanics texts that can be useful. Like some of them are really practical. Um, and then like like you just showed there, the joint structure and function is a good one. Like and that's another thing is that 
if you don't understand your anatomy, it's like, all right, that's your starting point. Like, oh, always start there. Like, that's the most foundational thing before you even discuss all this stuff. So, so if you're not at that level, I'd start there first, you know. And there's lots of free resources online to, to learn anatomy these days. Like, you, you have no excuse, you know. Um, to teachmeanatomy.com. I don't know what else. The three, there's a 3D anatomy app that's savage. I'm not sure if you guys use anything else. Yeah, we've got a, I've got a cool... Um, like that's the thing like we, we i mean it's like again referencing our courses in the shameless manner like the bulk of our first phase one course is well i said the bulk of it is a huge chunk of it that is just going through anatomy because people don't like we have people that have been in, in the on our last one they've been in the industry probably for longer than me and they couldn't tell me where the bicep attaches <laughs> and like or the you know the hamstrings attached i'm going to make it i'm going to make it you know, even more clear in this coming one on the weekend, I'm going to stand people up and ask them a question that I guarantee. And I'll be like, sit down if you know where this is. And then everyone's going to sit, uh, everyone's going to stay standing because they won't have any idea. And it's the most basic shit, but people don't understand. Like if you, and Michael, I was speaking to Michael about this on, on Wednesday. How can you talk about full range of motion? How can you talk about something shortening and lengthening if you don't know where it attaches? Like you can't. And um, and it and it is and if and it you know people are oh I know it's roughly there, but when you get into certain muscles like the specifics of where they attach makes a huge difference, um, like tiny you know in a few centimeters in in like origins and insertions can change you know give give a muscle that on paper has one action potentially two others, um, so it's um yeah it's it's people and that, that's I think the biggest takeaway from our last practical was. Like people, everyone walks away going, "Holy shit, I need to learn some anatomy." Um, so, like Gaz just said, if you want to get good at this stuff, learn your anatomy first, and then, and then start applying it. But it's all yeah. practical. I think you you guys teach it well as well because you essentially use the same method as Michael, where you use the balloons and the skeleton and all that. Is that correct? Yeah, but then he stopped doing that now. Oh really? But yeah, but I think yeah. I think that's that's just such a super way of learning anatomy because, yeah. like, you have to think about like right. If, if like even play it out in your head if this muscle was to shorten what would happen like forget what it says in the textbook just ask yourself because mm. so often you'll find that it goes so far beyond what the bullet points are in the textbook because it's like oh this is actually all position specific you know a good example of that is like the adductors it's like they're called the adductors so everyone's like oh yeah they just adduct the hip and then it's like what if the hip's in flexion? What if it, it's an extension? It's like, oh shit, it does everything. It's like, yeah. oh, this is amazing. Yeah. So that, that's where yeah. it gets interesting, I think. Yeah, that was the one I just referenced as well. Like, yeah, the the different, really? <laughs> you know, well, no, in the sense of, you know, people go, oh yeah, the adductors attach, you know, the five adductors yeah. attached to the, the pubis symphysis. And like, sweet. But then it's like the specifics of where those five attached, it means like three of them do some really cool shit and two of them do some completely different shit. But they're all roughly in the same area, but the difference in the order and, placement of where they're placed on the pubis symphysis and and then you you kind of show this to people they're like oh my god like the the adductors are hip extensors as well like, yeah nice one nice one. um but yeah it's um it's uh it's interesting stuff um yeah so that was awesome um so where can people find you guys uh, you can find me at, as Luke said, like triagemethod.com. We do the typical like online coaching thing. We also have a group coaching program uh, and education, um, as as Luke alluded to, articles on our website and our podcast as well. Um, Skinny Gaz on Instagram. I do post some stuff there. Trying to post a bit more kind of like the more in-depth exercise stuff these days because I generally don't put out that stuff just mm -hmm. because 
I, my audience is, is a lot different to your audience, but I guess your audience is specific to the information you put out. So I was like, actually, why don't I just start putting yeah. out more of this stuff? Because people like it. So And the world needs it. So, yeah. I need it. <laughs> <laughs> we all need it. Yeah, it's, it's glorious. But you have a very nice way of explaining things. So there'll be times where I'll say stuff, from, and you did it recently, actually, where I would kind of go in quite deep on my story, and then you'd do a post that just made it very simple. And like, blah. Gas words things really well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just more, I'm just more simple-minded. That's all. <laughs> not at all. I think you probably it just shows greater understanding. To be fair. Um, but uh, but and James, everyone knows James. James is our our just education. On Instagram, James underscore muscle mentor or the muscle mentors. Yeah, and absolutely bosses some educate uh, like exercise mechanic con- content himself. Awesome stuff there. Um, and uh, and yeah, and then you all know me, um, Colum, Callum. Oh yes. no, wait. Colum <laughs> Raisendick. Yeah, Colum Raisendick. That's actually the name on this on this Zoom meeting right now. Um, the uh, <laughs> but yeah, um, my name's Callum Raystrick. I'm uh, I'm really quite small, not that not that strong, and uh, kind of I train like a bit of a pussy. That's basically what you need to know about me <laughs> no there's gonna be people now that are like is that actually, Callum? Is that actually <laughs> no this is luke um and you know me so the uh but yeah we'll uh this will be up well i'll, I'll put this up soon um thank you very much for joining me on this boys it was an absolute pleasure um My and pleasure. Uh, hopefully we'll get another one like this sort of soon because this was a lot of fun um kind of you can break down like bench press mechanics or something <laughs> which should be lovely. Or we just talk, shoot some more shit about exercise mechanics because I think a lot of people are going to have benefited from this. Because I think, although this was technical, I want to say we did a pretty good job about keeping it relatively understandable. Leave that up to the listeners. I guess we'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> I know. But um, anyway, thank you guys and we'll uh, catch up soon. Cheers, Luke. <laughs>